Getting into this lesson tonight on uh, lesson 22 on limited atonement. You know, the, the death of Jesus, it's the center of the Bible, his death on the cross. It's really the pinnacle of Scripture and God's revelation in Scripture, the pinnacle of God's redemptive plan. Everything before the cross leads up to it, everything after the cross flows from it. It really is the cross, the crux of the Bible. And so naturally, we desire to understand his death. We want to and we need to know what Jesus was doing on the cross. Why did he die? Why did he have to die? What was he doing in that death? What was he accomplishing in that death? Being such a big deal, it's only right for us to want to know. And these questions concern the atonement of Christ. It's really one of the richest and largest topics in the Bible. And being the most important event in history... Again, it's only right that we would want to know as much about it as we can. And along these lines, one of the big questions that comes up concerning the atonement is the extent of the atonement. Namely, the question, for whom did Jesus die? On whose behalf was he making atonement on that cross? And for weeks, we've been exploring this issue, examining both sides of this long-standing debate. You've got the side of Arminianism, which believes that Jesus died for, for everybody, equally, all the same, without exception. God loves everyone. God desires all to be saved. And so, of course, he, he died for all. His view is called, typically, unlimited atonement. And on the other side stands Calvinism, which believes that Jesus died for the elect only. His death on the cross was in fulfillment of God's eternal plan to save his chosen ones. And therefore, Jesus made atonement for them only, effectively securing their salvation. And the other view is referred to as limited atonement, or sometimes like particular atonement or definite redemption. And so, so far in this Doctrines of Grace study, in the past month or two, we've really spent a good amount of time seeking to understand both sides of this question, this debate, now, I will point out from a couple weeks ago, upon further examination, we did find serious problems and pitfalls with uh, the unlimited atonement view. At first glance, it's, it's going to sound popular. It's going to sound appealing that Jesus died for all people in the same way without exception. But uh, upon further review, there are some glaring inconsistencies and problems with that position. For instance, we found that unlimited atonement doesn't actually do what it claims to do which is to to defend the love of God and to enable the free offer of the gospel. We found these two big claims. They just kind of ring hollow. They they don't really do what they claim to do. Furthermore, to secure an atonement that's unlimited in extent, Arminians are forced to really redefine the atonement, redefine the nature of the atonement. It's really a huge problem, though, because it leads to an unbiblical view of the atonement itself, where... Jesus made this provisional or potential atonement on the cross. But that that notion is so foreign to scripture. Arminians are forced to abandon the central theme of the atonement, which is the penal substitution, that he was an actual substitute for specific sinners. And they're forced to rob the language of the atonement of its meaning. They basically have to insert, you know, potentially or provisionally in front of every single passage about the atonement. And then finally, when it comes to their, their greatest argument, which if you remember, it's all the universal language in scripture used in connection with his death. Although we've yet to fully see this, we've seen enough to show that it's not an open and shut case. And that by no means do verses like John 3.16 prove that Jesus died for every single person born without exception. In fact, in time we'll show how the language of scripture It does not, in fact, endorse an unlimited atonement. And so anyway, overall, we found that the view of unlimited atonement, that that Jesus died for all people in the same way, without exception, has more going against it than for it. It has some serious and significant problems that, that, that leaves it wanting. I understand it's always going to be the more popular view because most people are scandalized by the thought that God sent Jesus to save a specific people only, that he didn't send Jesus to save everybody. But at the same time, Scripture is rather clear on this issue. Now, if you need to go back and go back to Lesson 20, this is Lesson 22. Lesson 20 is where we we kind of spoke and and further explored and, and saw the problems of unlimited atonement. 
Today's lesson, though, we're going to further examine the arguments and the claims of limited atonement, which we introduced last week. We spent a lot of time last week further exploring and explaining just what they believe, why they believe it. Now on the side of those who believe that Jesus died for for the elect only, for God's people only. And this evening, as we study this further, we're going to find that the clarity and the weight of Scripture really moves the scales in its favor. That the arguments in favor of, of limited atonement, they are rooted and grounded in Scripture, not human reason. And although it's, it's not going to be seeker-sensitive to say that Jesus did not die for everyone without exception, you know, if that's what Scripture teaches at the end of the day, though, are, are we not bound to believe it? We are. And, hey, you be the judge. We're going to look at a lot of Scripture this evening. You look at these verses with your own eyes and, and see how clear they are about God's plan of redemption and who that plan was for, Father, Son, and Spirit, together working to, to save a people. You're going to see for yourself uh, pretty in-depth tonight and next week. Now, if you were with us last week, you might recall we, we surveyed these five main arguments in favor of limited atonement. Really just introduced them, in many ways, scratch the surface. But tonight, starting tonight, we're going to re-examine some of those arguments in greater depth. But to simplify some things, though, that three of those arguments, we're really just going to combine into one. And it's a bit of a mouthful, so I didn't give you a fill-in-the-blank. I just wrote it for you in your notes. You don't have to worry too much. But we're going to spend the bulk of our time this evening just exploring this first big point, which is three arguments all crammed together, namely that limited atonement fits the Trinitarian plan of salvation, which includes the Son's priestly office and the Father's special love. I hope that rings a bell if you were here last week and you see how these three tie together. And in fact, you might remember last week how limited atonement really stems from these concepts that you've got this Trinitarian plan of salvation, just meaning Father, Son, and Spirit, they're working together to, to affect salvation of a people. And that includes the Son's office as high priest, and it, it flows from the Father's special love, which is a choosing love, a love that predestines. And all three of these concepts, they really relate together. And when further explored, they, they form a compelling reason that, that Jesus came and he died for this people, for the elect only. So let's just get into this and start off by, by further peering into Christ's priestly office. You know, they're all kind of flowing together. They're going to relate together. But first, just looking at a little bit more, his priestly office, Christ as high priest. Christ's role as high priest over his people, the church, is really part and parcel with God the Son's role in salvation. He serves as the, this high priest to save his people. And in eternity past, it was God's design that the Son would come and he would be this saving high priest on behalf of, of this people, the elect. Now, here's what's interesting, though. Pretty much everyone agrees that that Jesus functions as high priest over his people only. That he, he's really only the high priest of his people. That's, that's kind of the whole point. Just as the Old Testament high priest served on behalf of Israel only, God's chosen race. So Christ as high priest, he serves uh, on behalf of God's people only. The elect, the church, whatever you want to call them. Now, you might also recall last week as high priest... Jesus fulfills two primary functions in, re in relating to salvation. That's sacrifice and intercession. Remember that? Sacrifice and intercession. That's what the high priest does. And here again, though, everyone you know, pretty much agrees that Jesus performs one of these functions on behalf of the elect only. And that's intercession. So, you know, both sides are really agreeing that, well, yeah, he, he's high priest really only for the elect. And he intercedes as high priest, really only for the elect. And this we found stated explicitly last week in John 17, which we need to look at again. So open your Bibles to John 17 if you want to follow along. There's going to be a lot of verses this evening, so if you're quick, you can, you can follow along with us. But as you remember, this is commonly referred to as Christ's high priestly prayer. He's interceding for the church, his people only. 
In this prayer, it's crystal clear that Jesus serves as high priest over a specific people, a people given to him by the Father. And we find that this Trinitarian plan of salvation, it perfectly coincides with Christ's priestly role, which it's so specifically stated to be on behalf of just his people, the church, only. And so this is the work that God the Father gave to the Son, and the Son perfectly accomplished. And let's just jog our memory in John 17, and just, just see how clearly you find Christ's priestly intercession for believers only, for the elect only. John 17, let's just look at verse 1. It's the night before his death. Jesus spoke these things, lifting up his eyes to heaven. He said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. Here we learn, we learn that the Father gave this authority to Jesus, and it funnels to, to these people, the, these people whom the Father has given to Jesus, and it's, the, it's to those people that Jesus gives eternal life. He's not handing it out to everybody. He's giving it. He's passing it along to those whom the Father gave to him. Verse 3, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the ones given, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Verse 6, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world, that they were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. You see that the picture, there's a plan in the past, we would say eternity past, of the Father and the Son. And the Father has, has a work for Christ to accomplish. And this is the hour. The hour has come. He sent the Son into the world for this purpose, to accomplish this work which Jesus is doing, to manifest God's name to, to a people given to him out of the world. Not the world, to a specific people given to him. And, and it says, they were yours. They belonged to God before he came. They, they were given over to the Son. This is an eternal allotment. This is election. This is, this is God's chosen people. They were given to Christ, and now Christ is coming to, to secure them, to secure their salvation. But notice that the Father and the Son, they're working together in this plan to affect this plan. And now Christ is interceding for this people. He says in verse 9, he says, uh, you know, and, and regarding these people who believed in Christ, verse 8, they believed. He says in verse 9, I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. Father and Son, again, on the same page, they share this people. There's no disagreement here. But Christ, it's ever so clear in verse 9, he's interceding here. And I understand as high priest, this is a salvific intercession that as a priest praying for his people. And he, he's only doing it for those given to him, not for the world. He, he just straight up says, not on behalf of the world. He's not asking on behalf of the world. It's, it's just... It's too clear. Verse 20, he says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, talking about the disciples right there in front of him, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. He thereafter prays for future disciples as a testimony to the world, but nowhere in here does he pray for the world. He prays for his disciples and the future church only, asking them to be taken out of the world, saved from this world, and it's his intercession which will guard and keep them and eventually bring them into the, the full love of God. Look how it ends, verse 24. He says, Father, I desire that they also, who, whom you have given me, be with me where I am. So that they may see my glory, which you have given me, for you love me before the foundation of the world. 
a righteous father. Although the world has not known you, yet I have known you. And these have known that you sent me. And I have made known your name to them. And will make it known so that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. Notice in this prayer, you've got God the Father's special love for God the Son. And it's this special love for God the Son that leads God the Father to to give to the Son a people, a bride, out of the world to be his possession, to share in his glory, to share in his love. And this plan explicitly does not include everyone in the world, but only this, this people given to Jesus by the Father, this allotment. The Bible calls them the elect. Jesus here is pictured. He's, he's their savior. He's their keeper. And he's their priest. And for them and for them only does he intercede. So far, this is clear, right? But here's where the Arminian would choose to split Christ's priestly role. And they'll say that, okay, while he may be priest over his people only, the church, and although he may intercede for his people only, he still sacrificed himself for everyone in the same way. But I hope you see the great inconsistency with this. You have Jesus, you're saying he, he sacrificed himself for everybody, yet he refuses to intercede for everybody. What are you really gaining by this? Remember, as we learned, that, that the main driving reason for Arminian theology uh, and and their claim that Jesus died for all people is to uphold the love of God. Remember that? It really all stems back from trying to defend the love of God, this caricature that, you know, otherwise, how could a loving God not save everybody? Well, that God loved everybody so much that he sent Jesus for everyone to die for everyone, hoping that all would be saved. But... If we find Jesus refusing to intercede for the world as priest, a salvific intercession, well, what good is him dying for them? It really doesn't do anything for them if he's not going to intercede for them as well. As a priest, you've got to do both. To effectively atone for your people, the high priest had to first make sacrifice and then intercede for the people, for that atonement to, to matter, to take effect. He had to take that, the, the blood of the uh, sacrifice into the Holy of Holies and intercede with it on behalf of the people. So really, does it really defend the love of God to say to an unbeliever, hey, Jesus died for you, but he doesn't intercede for you, so you're still kind of on your own. It doesn't really gain you anything or defend the love of God. In reality, God's special love is what's really on display in this passage which is a love that, that funnels through God the Son, and it, it includes only those given to the Son as this gift. And the Son's love is likewise coextensive with the Father's love and choosing, such that Jesus, he only intercedes for the ones loved by the Father and given to him by the Father. You see that the will of the Father, the will of the Son, they're in perfect harmony here. The Father and Son share completely in their saving intention, which several times in John 17, Christ says over and over again, those you've given to me, those you've given to me, those you've given to me, not the world, not the world, not the world. This is particular redemption, defined, and and his high priestly function makes that clear. And nothing here leads us to split up the priestly roles of Christ. That he's going to intercede for only the elect, but then sacrifice for every, everybody. Nothing leads us to split up his roles like that. These roles are actually likewise coextensive, meaning those for whom he savingly intercedes is the same group as those for whom he savingly died and made atonement. Just like in the Old Testament framework, the high priest, he made sacrifice and interceded for the same people. The same group. And likewise, Christ is high priest. He, he makes sacrifice, death on the cross, and intercedes for the same group of people. It, it's, it's, it's a unified work and it's a coextensive work. The extent of the intercession is going to be the same as the extent of the atonement, which is what we're studying, right? The extent of the atonement. 
You see how it flows quite naturally from his priestly office. There's some more verses that, that back this up. I'm going to try and be quick here because we do have a lot of ground to cover. But Hebrews 2, 17. I'm just going to read these for you. That Christ is high priest. He made propitiation for the sins of the people. As high priest, he made propitiation for the sins of the people. Hebrews 7, 25. That Christ is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. Just notice, intercession is tied to salvation, just like sacrifice is tied to salvation. You you think of Christ's death on the cross as saving you, and it does, that's sacrifice. But if Jesus didn't ascend to the right hand of the Father, and if he didn't make intercession for us at the right hand, we would not be saved. These these go together as, as part of the atonement, sacrifice and intercession. He must appeal for us, and he does. And the, the kicker, though, is he, he does this only for, for us, for the church, for the elect. Hebrews 9.24, we read that before, that Christ entered the holy place of heaven to appear in God's presence as that high priest for us. Again, it's just, it's just for us. And now First John 2, verses 1 and 2. This is a big passage. I'll, I'll read it for you. Again, if you're fast, you can turn there. But 1 John 1 and 2, it says this, chapter 2, verse 1. He says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but for those of the whole world. Now, starting in verse 1 here. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. The righteous. This verse is picturing Jesus as our advocate only. He does say, if anyone sins, but then right after that, he limits the, the anyone by saying, we have an advocate. He doesn't say, well, they have an advocate. No, we have the advocate. Why? Because he made propitiation for our sins on our behalf. Now, since we're here, we might as well address verse 2. Verse 2 is one of the the top verses used by those who believe in unlimited atonement to support their view that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. And then it says, not for ours only, but for those of the whole world. And so verse 2 is used all the time to defend unlimited atonement. But understand, if this phrase, whole world, is taken to be all people without exception, then no one could be condemned. Because that's what propitiation means. Jesus put away the wrath of God. He satisfied the wrath of God. He drank the full cup of the wrath of God, making propitiation, making full atonement. And if Jesus truly did that for all people ever lived, no one could go to hell. Because then what what wrath is left for them in hell? If he made propitiation for them all, and he said, it is finished... Why would they be condemned in hell? There's no wrath left. Unless you rob propitiation of its meaning, which is what they're they're forced to do. But no, rather, the whole point here is that Jesus, he's our advocate when we sin. Why? Well, because he made propitiation for us. We can't be condemned because he already turned away God's wrath on our behalf. This is just like Romans 8, 1, that there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus which is us. And so just as Jesus does not advocate for all people without exception, so he does not make propitiation for all people without exception. Instead, this phrase, whole world, it can just as easily be taken to mean all people without distinction. Not all people without exception, everybody ever born, but all people without distinction, meaning he made propitiation for for ours and the whole world, for Jews and for Gentiles, for all types and classes of people. The language can just as easily mean that. And unless you rob propitiation of its, all of its value, that's what it means. Tim, question? Yeah, so uh, John 3.16 would be the same thing. The world there means his own. Well, his own, not yeah. the world. We'll, we'll, we're doing John 3.16 next week. So okay. you, you save that question for next week and you'll get your full answer. 
Yeah. Next week is a lot of those verses. Well, let's, let's turn down to Romans chapter 8. Let's get a couple more in here real quick. Romans chapter 8. Another passage here that, that, again, the point, it's tying together Christ's high priestly role for the elect only. And that includes sacrifice and intercession. And this is a passage that, that does just that. It ties them together. Romans 8, verse 31 through 34 to start. He says, What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. So in this passage, it's well known. Who is God for? He's for us, for the church, for believers in the context. And he delivered his son. It doesn't say for all, but for all of us. The son was delivered for us all, the church. He saved us. And so because of this, who can bring a charge against us? Verse 33 makes clear. He's talking about the elect. He just says it. Who can bring a charge against us, the elect? The answer is no one, because God himself justified us. He goes on to say, Jesus died for us. He was raised for us. He's at the right hand for us. And he intercedes for us. This is why no one can bring a charge against you. Because, because of Christ's priestly work. Nothing can be done. No one can condemn us or bring a charge against us in the end because of what has been done. And this is why nothing can separate us from the love of God. Uh, and understand, this is, this is not true for the lost. They can be separated from the love of God, and, and they will be separated from the love of God. Here's a perfect place to transition and talk more about the greater love of God. Remember, we're tying together these three arguments. They all weave together. So we're starting with Christ's high priestly office and how it really leads to a, a limited or a definite atonement. Let's now weave in this, this greater love of God for his people. That God has a general love for all people, sure, but there's a special saving love, and it's not for all people. It's for the elect only. If God had such a saving love for all people, all people would be saved. It's just an incontrovertible truth of Scripture. Unless you rob God of his power and sovereignty, if he really, he's the supreme creator. If he really wants all to be saved, all will be saved. But let's look at this. Romans 8, 37 through 39. Verse 37 says, But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why do we conquer? Why do we overwhelmingly conquer all these forces that keep us from God? Because, because God loved us. That's why we conquer, because he loved us. Therefore, nothing can separate us from God's love in Christ. We will be saved. This is such a powerful passage on assurance of salvation and preservation, that God's preserving us with the same love with which he loved us. Now, of course, this is not true for the unelect. Remember, he, he's mentioned the elect in this whole context. The whole point is, you know, they, they will be separated from the love of God. They will be lost. This passage is clearly stating that God has ultimate power, right? How is God's power on display here? And the fact that nothing can get in the way of his love for us. Nothing can overturn that. So you can't be lost. If you're in that love, you're, you, you will never be lost. It, it, there's no power. There's no created thing. Not even death itself can overpower God's love for us. 
Sounds like a pretty strong love. Sounds like a pretty powerful force, right? And this is why nothing can condemn us or separate us. This love, if that, were, if that love were for all people, everyone's getting saved. Now here, Arminians, they're forced to say this, that nothing can separate us from God's love, except our own free will. That's literally what they say. That's what they have to say. It's what they say. Nothing can separate us from this love, except ourselves. You can do this, but no other created thing can do this, but you and your will can do this. If you don't choose to be in Christ, well then, you're going to be separated from God's love. I didn't see any exceptions in this passage, though, did you? I'm pretty sure it said, nor any other created thing. That would include us and our will, right? So, there's no exceptions here. Where does it say that nothing can separate us from this love of God except ourselves? It doesn't say that. And furthermore, if that were the case, this passage would give us absolutely no assurance which is the whole point of the passage. Because if our will can defeat this saving love of God, even if we're in God's love right now, even if we believe right now, who's to say that in the future, I'm going to change my mind and then I'm going to defeat God's love all over again and be lost. And that's why the Armenian has no assurance of salvation because they've made human will more powerful than God's will. So you can get yourself into it and get yourself out of it as well. This robs this whole passage there's no value then. What's, what's the encouragement here if you can overpower this love of God? No, it's clear. This is a special love of God. It's a powerful love of God. It can't be defeated or overturned. It's just, it's just for the elect only. That's the whole point. And it's, it's clear everywhere in Scripture. Let me read for you now Ephesians 5.25. I mentioned last week we'd come back to this one. Ephesians 5.25. This is... I think this will tie this together when it comes to the love of God. Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and also gave himself up for her. This is actually, it's talking about husbands and wives, but he brings in Christ. And this is actually a specific statement on the extent of, of the atonement. Christ gave himself up. We have atonement language here. And it tells us for whom did he give himself up? Isn't that the question we're asking? For whom did he die? It says for the church, not for the world, not for all people, just for the church. Now, there are many verses like this which are very particular, like Jesus died for God's people, for the church, for the elect, right? When you come to passages like this, Arminians are very quick to say that. Well, you know, in passages where God speaks of his special love for the church, yeah, that's fine. That doesn't rule out his equal love for the world. That's what they'll say. Like, okay, it's just an example. He loves the church. That doesn't mean he doesn't love the world in the same way. You hear that all the time. In this passage, that's exactly what it means, though. Let me me explain that. This passage is all about the fact that Jesus loved the church in a way in which he did not love the world. Do you get that? He loved the church in a way in which he did not love the world. He gave himself up for the church in a way that he did not give himself up for the world. Understand, if this were true, if Jesus died for the world in the same way that he died for the church, this whole husband-wife analogy would make zero sense. Our love for our wives is tied to Christ's love for the church. But if Jesus loved the world in the same way as he loved the church and gave himself up for her, well, then we're being told to love our wives in the same way we love all women. That's not what it says, though. That doesn't make any sense whatsoever. The whole point is we're being told to love our wives unlike how we love any other woman. It's a particular love. It's a special love. It's only for our wives. It doesn't say love all women. It says love your wives. Just like Christ loved his particular bride, gave himself up for his particular bride. Not everyone. This is a particular love, an exclusive love. It's Christ's saving love for the church. Verse 26, 27, it tells us, you know, he gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her. 
having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Making clear that the goal of Christ's love here is salvation. It's glorification. This is a saving love. It's, it's crystal clear. The intent of Jesus giving himself up for the church was to glorify the church, to save the church. Again, if you cannot get around this fact, although people try, if Jesus had this love for everyone without exception, everyone without exception would be saved. This is just the power of a sovereign grace and a sovereign love. Now, so far, do you see that the unity and the harmony between the Father and the Son in the plan of salvation Is there any example where they're at odds so far? I mean, they're just completely unified. The Father gave a people to Jesus. And Jesus came as priest over them to save them by sacrificing himself for them and by interceding for them. The Father loved the Son with a special love. And that's why he gave to the Son a bride, a special people. And the Son then gave himself to to secure this bride, to make holy this bride. The same, every passage, the Father and Son, they're working together. They're never split. And just as the Father elected some, not all, so Jesus came for some, not all. He came to die for the same people the Father elected. Now let's just kind of tie this together now by looking at a few more verses that just show this Trinitarian unity in salvation from God's Particular election to Christ's particular death. Not universal, particular. Again, these three threads woven together. Christ's high priestly office is for the church only, for the elect only. This special love of God reserved for the elect only. And then the Trinitarian plan of salvation for God's people only. Let's see that now. You can turn to Ephesians 1. Ephesians chapter 1. You know, John 4, 3, uh, 34, in your notes, Christ said, my, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Philippians 2, 8, Christ humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And many verses teach that Jesus came to do the will of the Father. You know that. You've heard that before, right? He came not to do his own will, but the will of the Father. The Father had a will and sent Jesus to accomplish this will. What's that will? They're in agreement. We've seen that. What's the will? What's the plan here of father and son? But they're working together for this will, this plan, this purpose. What is it? Ephesians 1 is one place that tells us, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we we would be holy and blameless before him. We've seen this verse many times. The Father has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places by choosing us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless. All the blessings we have, like forgiveness and redemption and reconciliation and adoption, they all stem from us being in Christ. But realize our status in Christ traces back to before the foundation of the world. This eternal counsel that we were predestined as sons. That's verse 5. Verse 5 says, In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. There's his will. Verse 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. This is God's sovereign grace and sovereign will to choose a people, to predestine a people, to be sons and daughters with his son forever. 
He predestined us unto sons via adoption in Christ, according to God's will. This is the Father's will at work. And his will is the salvation of a people, the elect, all to the praise of his glory. This is all to the praise of his glory. Jump down to verse 9. Again, it says, He made known to us the mystery of his will. According to his kind intention, which he purposed in him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens, things on earth. Verse 11, In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. That's pretty clear. God's intention, his will in Christ is to save a people. This is the Father's purpose. Jesus came to do the Father's will in humble obedience to the Father's will. Even though it meant death on the cross, Jesus still came to accomplish this will. And it it was all focused on this, this people, these who were predestined. And that's not everybody. And with the Father's will and the Son's will being coextensive, they have the same will. They're working on the same blueprint here. It only makes sense that Jesus died on the cross for the same people. The same people in this passage that God the Father chose and predestined and elected before the foundation of the world. He sent Jesus. He gave these people to Jesus. Sent them into the world to save them. So who's he dying for on the cross? It's these people. Jesus achieved God's will by dying for these predestined people. And then, let's bring in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit then comes along and, and he applies the atonement, but on whose behalf? These people, the same people, and only these people. Verse 13, he says then, In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, You were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who's given as a pledge of our inheritance with a a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. One more step here. This people, these chosen ones, they're God's possession. And the Holy Spirit applies the atonement and then secures them. You're sealed. You can't go anywhere. You're his possession. You belong to him and you'll be with him. Yeah, we still, we still have to be redeemed. We ha- has to be applied. We understand all that. But in God's eyes, outside of time, it's a done deal. I mean, you're sealed in the Spirit now. Father, Son, and Spirit in this passage, working together to save forever God's people. Now, as a side note, there's some people who might label this concept that I'm talking about here uh, with the term covenant of redemption. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of that. The covenant of redemption. Now, although we wouldn't agree with everything in this covenantalist framework, the basic idea is true that that God in eternity past, he made a plan of redemption that included all three members of the Trinity working together to save the elect. The Father chooses a special people among the world or from among the world, and he gives them to the Son. The Son agrees to come to earth to save these people, to make them holy, to secure them, making atonement for their sins, that they might inherit the special love of God. The Spirit likewise agrees to apply the atonement of Christ on their behalf. All those given by the Father, they're going to come to Jesus and believe because they're drawn by the Father and they're converted by the Spirit. And to them, and to them only, Jesus gives eternal life. This is the essence of particular redemption, which is what we're talking about here. And we're going to go a little over time tonight, but I've got to squeeze in a couple more passages, so let's just do it. We started a little late anyway, so we'll, we'll make an exception. John chapter 6. Let's see if we can get through these two more passages in John to, to wrap this up and tie this together. John chapter 6. John 6. I'll start at verse 32. He's talking to the crowd, and he says... Verse 32, truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. 
And they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. So here we learn the father, he's giving some bread out of heaven. It comes down out of heaven. It gives life to the world. So there's the word world. You might think, oh, this is, this is everybody, right? But who's he talking about? Well, let's, let's keep reading. Verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Okay, so he's the bread. He's talking about himself. He says, he who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. So open invitation, right? Hey, come to me. Whoever comes, he who comes, you're going to live forever. Okay. But who's going to do that? Who's going to come to him? He says, he who comes will never hunger. He's the bread of, of, of life given. But who's going to do it though? Verse 36. But I said to you that you have seen me, yet you do not believe. He just said, look, if you believe, you'll be saved. But here's this crowd and they don't believe. Why don't they believe? He's going to explain why they don't believe in verse 37. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. Everybody believes that, you know, both sides of this debate, whoever goes to Jesus will be saved, right? We all believe in that. But just the question is, who's going to actually do that? Scripture lifts the hood and tells us, verse 37, well, only the ones that the Father gave to Jesus are going to come. They're going to heed the call to come to Jesus. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. Verse 35, he said, he who comes will be saved. But verse 37 makes clear, who's going to do that? Well, only the ones that the Father gave. Here's that, the, the same uh, terminology again, right? That these, these people give into the Son by the Father. We've seen that over and over, haven't we? Let's keep going here real quick. Verse 38, Jesus said, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Again, another tie-in, the Father, the Son, the Trinitarian plan. They have the same will. Jesus came from heaven like this bread, not on his own will, but the will of the Father. The Father, the Father had a will. The Father sent Jesus to accomplish his will. What's the will? What's the plan here? Verse 39. This is the will of him who sent me. That of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. So perfectly puts God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. It's true, like, you have to behold Jesus. You have to believe to be saved. That's true, we all believe that. But he, he's letting us know who's going to do that. Who will believe our report? Who will come to Jesus? Well, God's will revealed that it's, it's the ones given to him. That Jesus came. He just said it. He came down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do God's will. And what's that will? Well, to save the, the ones he gave to me. To lose none of the ones given to me, but to raise them up. To save them. He's making it pretty clear what's his will. The Father's will, the Son's will in salvation. It's for the elect. It's for this people given to the Son. Now, in verse 41, 42, the, the crowd, they grumble at Jesus because they don't like it. And this, this teaching is never popular with the natural man or the natural mind. Verse 43, Jesus rebukes their grumbling. He says, verse 44, he, makes it, he, he doubles down. He doesn't backtrack. He just says it. Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. There's that same phrase again, I will raise him up on the last day. We're talking about glorification. Who's going to be glorified? Who's going to come to Jesus? No one. Except those the Father has given to him and those the Father draws. It's not enough that the Father gave them to Jesus. The Father has to also draw them to Jesus, which he does through the Spirit. We'll, we'll get to that later. Let's just finish verse 61. Jump down to the end. You know, after this, a bunch of people, they, they leave Jesus. They stop following Jesus because they, they can't accept this teaching. And that's how it is today. A lot of people can't stomach this high view of God because it diminishes man. But Jesus, verse 61, you know, they're having a hard time with everything he's saying. Verse 61, but Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at him, said to them, 
Does this cause you to stumble? What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. But there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who, would, and who it was that would betray him. There's no surprises here. He's, this is, this is a, there's a plan here. There's a will. He, he, he knows what's happening. It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. Tying in the Holy Spirit. He's the one who, who effectively draws people and brings them to life. That they will believe in Jesus, which you must do to be saved. But we're in the flesh, though. And while in the flesh, you can't believe. And this explains why these people aren't believing. Because they're still in the flesh. They're still dead in their trespasses and sins. They have no eyes to see him. And Jesus knew who was going to believe and who wasn't going to believe. He still offered. We offered everybody. But it doesn't change the fact that he knew who was going to believe and who was not. And so the picture is the Father has a will. It's a secret will, but Jesus is revealing it. That God has a people, a group, a body, a bride. And that the Father gave this to Jesus as an allotment. Jesus came, per the Father's will, to save them. To lose none of them, but to raise them up on the last day, a.k.a. to glorify them. And when the time is right, the Father will, will call them and draw them through the Spirit, bring them to life. But just remember this, verse 65. And he was saying, For this reason, I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. He, he never backtracks or softens the edges of this teaching. Just, he just, that's why he finishes. Like It's not going to happen unless God has chosen you. And verse 66, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Nothing's changed. I mean, this teaching that this is the biblical view of God and his sovereignty, it exalts God, it diminishes man. Remember Ephesians 1, though, that's the whole point. This is to the praise of his grace and his glory, not ours. This, this teaching is not to the praise of our will and our, our worth. It's to the praise of his glory and grace. We're, I, I'm okay with that, but a lot of people aren't. And they walk away. They can't handle it. Or they change God. They change the picture. They change the atonement. We're not going to do that. Let's just do it. One last passage, shall we? Are we finished? You're okay? Okay, good. If you need to leave, you can leave. John chapter 10. Of course, after that, you're probably going to be too ashamed to leave. Like, you know, the disciples, they weren't walking with them anymore. Like, yeah. Got you guilted into staying. You really can't go anywhere. <clears throat> John chapter 10. Uh, I mentioned we were going to come back here as well, and so we'll finish here. Good place to stop. John chapter 10, let's, verse 1. Uh, another section of teaching, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. A stranger, they simply will not follow, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. So he's building an analogy here, obviously. Christ the shepherd, the sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name. He leads them out. The shepherd here, the picture is he has some sheep. Not everyone's a sheep, but he has some sheep. He possesses them. He knows them by name. This is a specific group. It's not a general, vague group of people. This is a specific group. He knows them by name. He's not calling the goats. He's calling the sheep. And once these sheep are called, they respond because they know his voice. And they respond. He leads them out. He goes ahead of them. They follow the stranger. They will not follow. There's a specific shepherd. There's specific sheep. They, they just go together. Now, verses 6 through 10, he connects some dots here. Let's read that real quick. Verse, verse 6. 
This figure of speech, Jesus spoke to them, but they didn't understand what those things were which he had been saying to them. So Jesus said to them again, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I come that they may have life and have it abundantly. Now, first, he's connecting two dots in his analogy. First, he's going to say, I'm the door, meaning he's the passageway of faith. You have to go through him to be saved. To be let out to, to good pasture, you've got to go through the door of Christ. You have to believe in him to be saved. That's part one. He's the door. Net part two is he's also the shepherd. So in this analogy, he's the door and the shepherd. I'm sure you already know that. And this is where we're going to pick up here in verse 11. But notice in verse, verse 10, he, he tells us why he came. He's going to transition now to, he's not, not so much the door, now he's the shepherd. He's going to now shift gears in this analogy. Why has the shepherd come for the sheep? Not to kill, not to destroy, verse 10, but that they may have life and have it abundantly. Who's they? The sheep. Why did Jesus come? That's the question we're after, right? Why did he come? Why did he die? For whom did he die? Here, it seems like it's saying he came and died for the sheep that they would have life. And remember, it's not all our sheep. Let me prove that. Verse 11, he continues, I am the good shepherd. Okay, now we've switched metaphors. Now he's a shepherd. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Not for everybody. He lays down his life for the sheep, his sheep. Unlike a hired hand, verse 12, he who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who, he's talking about false teachers, of course, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. What have we learned here, though? And Christ is obviously not like that. He's the good shepherd. But what does it say here? He, he came for the sheep. He owns the sheep. And he's concerned about the sheep. He's going to defend them. He's going to guard the sheep. And here's a picture of a shepherd who is intensely concerned with this little pen of sheep. So much so that he will lay down his life for the sheep. He will die for these sheep. There is possession. Verse 14, he says again, I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Now he's bringing in the Father. Father and Son, again, together again. Jesus, he's a good shepherd. He knows his own. Again, the note of possession, and his own know him. In the same way as the Father and Son know each other, Christ is bringing these sheep into this type of relationship, even, even by laying down his life for the, the sheep. The same Trinitarian relationship the Father has with the Son, he, he's bringing the sheep into that full, the love of God. Verse 16, he says, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, that they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. Here he's clearly talking about the Gentiles. He's ministering to an exclusively Jewish crowd at the time, but he's talking about his plan for all the nations. Verse 17, he says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have an authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from the Father. The Father's will comes back into the picture that, that Christ fulfills this mission. He's doing it on his own initiative, but at the same time, it's the Father's will. But there's no contradiction that they're, they're on the same page here in salvation. And he's come to lay down his life for the sheep, this people given to Jesus by the Father, this, this pen of sheep given to him. And he's going to lay down his life to secure them. And he's going to take his life back up again, all in God's authority. Now, now, to finish, go to verse 25. There's a few more here. He says, verse 25, I told you, and yet you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me, but you do not believe 
because you're not of my sheep. And here's a verse we've seen again many times as well, rebuking those who, who didn't believe. It's true. For you to be saved, you must believe. But here, after this teaching, there's people later on at the Feast of Jerusalem. He's teaching and preaching, and if they don't believe, he picks up the imagery again. Why don't they believe? Look at the signs and wonders. Why don't they believe? And he says, well, because you're not, in, you're not of my sheep. I know my own. I own them. They're going to believe. In time, they're all going to believe and be saved. But you don't believe because you're not of my sheep. And as I've said many times, he doesn't say, you're not my sheep because you don't believe. And if you, if you were only believe, now you'd be a sheep. That's not how it works. That's not what he says. He says, you don't believe because, reason, because you're not a sheep. The sheep hear his voice. When he calls, they respond. They come alive. They follow him. Verse 27 My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. He says it outright. Verse 28, And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. You know, you identify a sheep by the sheep's response. Those who believe, well, you find, oh, I guess that's a sheep. Because they responded. But what comes first? It's God's designation. His gift to the son of these sheep. And Christ gives eternal life to them, and they're never going to perish. No one will snatch them out of his hand, this group. It's that irresistible love again, right? That preserving love. Same thing with the Father, verse 29. My Father, who has given them to me, so it's pretty clear, we're talking about the same group of people, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Trinitarian plan is at work again, Father and Son. They're doing the same thing. On behalf of the same group of people, the elect. And it's from start to finish. God elects them. Christ died for them. The Spirit applies it. And then they all work together to preserve God's people until the very end. That's perseverance of the saints and preservation of the saints. We'll see later. And then Jesus says, to finish it off, verse 30, I and the Father are one. And with this statement, Jesus really highlights the essential unity between God the Father and God the Son. And surely this unity, he's saying a lot with that statement, but surely this unity includes purpose and intention and will. They're completely united in their efforts to save a people. And that includes Jesus dying for that people. That Jesus laid down his life for the sheep. And that's exclusive. It's not for the world. It's for the sheep. And it, it's so explicit. Well, I think this, this statement, I and the Father are one, that, that kind of sums up what we've been talking about today. A good place to end. We've covered a lot of ground, a lot of verses. Even though technically this was just the first point. In your notes, it's really just point one. But understand this. Here's the point. Limited atonement fits the Trinitarian plan of salvation, which includes the Son's priestly office and the Father's special love. It's, it's your point number one. It's, it is a mouthful, but I hope now it makes sense. You've seen it for yourself. The weight, the testimony of Scripture, it's there. Wouldn't you say? That God the Father, He knows what He's doing. Christ knows what He's doing. God didn't send Jesus to make people savable. Ultimately, you know, leaving it up to them to decide whether or not they'll be in God's love or resist God's love. Rather, God the Father and Son and Spirit conspired together with this eternal plan to effectively save and secure a body, a bride, a sheep fold for the Son, this group, the elect. The Father sent the Son to die for this people, to secure them, being, his high, being their high priest, per special love. Uh, this is the essence of limited atonement, which, which we would better call definite atonement, particular redemption. Christ came to secure a bride, died for that bride, saving that bride only. Well, there's still a little bit left to go, which we'll do next week. Next week will be the, the final lesson on the atonement. We're going to finish it all up, wrap it up by finally getting to all that language stuff. Remember, I've been talking about the language of the atonement. It's a big issue. We've saved it for the end. So we'll come back next week. We'll hit the language of the atonement. See if we can't tie loose ends together and really drive home 
that God has a particular love for his people. So with that, we are plenty over time, so I'm just going to pray and, and we'll be done. Let's, let's go ahead and pray. Lord God in heaven, we, we praise you like we do every week. We, uh, the more we behold your truth, it fills our minds with wonder and with awe. Sometimes mystery, but nonetheless, Lord, uh, a real sense of, of majesty. You're, you're a big God. You're a God who made all things. That though the mind of sinful man wants to knock you down and, and kind of reshape you a little bit more in our image, that we can tolerate you more. In Scripture, you're just a big, supreme, sovereign God who, who knows what he's doing. Lord, you sit in the heavens. You do what you please. You work all things according to the counsel of your will. You're, you're simply a supreme. But we submit to that, and, and Lord, uh, I wouldn't have it any other way. I wouldn't want a God any other way. All we can do, though, Lord, is, is thank you that, that we're in that special love. We know, we confess, it's not because we're special, not because we're better. It's simply by your hidden and, and perfect will. We may never see the, the depths of that will, Lord, but we can, we can praise you. We can function the way you've, you've predestined us to function, and that is to the praise of your glory and grace that, that we've received it. Hey, we're going to preach the gospel to all people. We're going to call all to be saved. We might know that only the elect will believe, but we don't know who the elect are, so we're going to, we're going to preach the gospel to all nations. But Lord, at the same time, we're going to magnify you for the, the greater truths we know, that the deep truths of Scripture, that you're God with a special love for a special people given to a special son, secured by the special spirit, and we will magnify you for this, this special plan, the plan of particular redemption. And we do that tonight. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.